Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Talk about a weekend of carnage on BC roads and highways. We had multiple fatalities and separate accidents around the province. We had a, a fatal hit and run in Surrey. How do you, boy, running away from the scene of an accident, man, that is a pretty sad situation there. Also had an absolutely tragic crash on the Sea to Sky Highway. Three people killed, including a child. And this was a single vehicle crash here. Happened uh, at 12.30 a.m. near south of Whistler, and then, of course, we had the absolutely wild police chase of a farm tractor on the Trans-Canada. And the tractor actually flipped over during this police chase. Got Grant Gottkentrude standing by to discuss all of this. First, let's have a listen to this. This is Global News reporter Julia Foy on the cha- police chase of a farm tractor on the Trans-Canada. Around 12.30 Saturday afternoon, drivers couldn't believe their eyes when they saw a large green tractor hogging the road. Shortly followed behind them, two RCMP officers with their lights and sirens on, uh, following the tractor. The two were actually BC Highway Patrol cars. They stayed hot on the tractor's tail. The door just ripped off. The tractor's flipped. The tractor's flipped. The farm vehicle swerved onto an exit lane for Highway 1 and crashed. I'm not an auto body guy or an ICBC guy, but I think that one's a write-off. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Grant Godkentrue. Grant is a former traffic police officer. He's now a forensic traffic consultant. ForensicTrafficPro.com is his website. Grant, thank you for coming on. Always my pleasure, Mike. Hey, Grant, this is a pretty wild police chase here. This uh, tractor on Highway 1 apparently was going to a protest rally at a protest flag against uh, gender orientation, sexual orientation and gender gender inclusion studies in BC schools. So he was on his way to some protest rally, decided to go on the highway, ends up flipped over. What did you think of this pursuit here now? Because it almost seems like the police were, were trying, trying to cut the guy off. We're trying to slow him down. What did you think of this strategy there? Well, I think we've all seen the video and uh, there's going to have to be some justification for that pursuit, which is why the IIO is involved Um, The rules governing pursuits in British Columbia are really restrictive. Um, They changed uh, just over a decade ago throughout the province. Um, You know, back in the old days when when I started, you know, we could pursue till the cows came home. And and generally they would only be called off by the by the bosses if it was becoming too dangerous. But now you you can't initiate a pursuit um, unless there's certain parameters involved. Uh, and one of the big ones is um, is the risk of, of letting the person get away uh, greater the, um, than, than um, um, not pursuing at all. And, and does it put the public at risk, risk? Now, this is a farm vehicle. It's not going to be able to go very fast. So in this case, the officers will have to explain why they initiated the, the, the tried to pull the vehicle over in the first place, and why they decided to engage in a pursuit, um, yeah. which because they're inherently dangerous and they put everyone at risk. Um, yeah. 
So it's like, is the need to stop this person greater than the need to let them get away? And 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 that's and that's something that the IIO is going to look at. Um, so uh, I, I just looking at it, it's like, okay, it's a farm vehicle, can't go very fast. And why did they try to pull it over in the first place? And why did they then engage in a in a pursuit? Because you can't initiate a pursuit for for a, for not pulling over. That's that is a rule. The, the, you can't engage in a pursuit just because you try to pull someone over and they don't stop. That's not a reason to initiate a pursuit. Well, I, Pursu- I assume that a, I assume that a, a an agricultural tractor like that would not be allowed to be on the highway in the first place, would it? Well, there there are different rules regarding implements of husbandry, and that's what these agriculture and farm vehicles are called. Uh, now, obviously. Um, there are signs on Highway One that you have to be able to at least maintain a speed of sixty kilometers an hour in order to be on the on the highway. But again, um, that's not a reason to initiate a pursuit because a vehicle is driving too slow, um, especially something of that size. That's a big vehicle, and as as everyone saw when it flipped, you know, um, and how much damage was on the RCMP vehicle, um, um, it it's something that they're going to have to try to justify and the IIO uh, rightfully is going to look at this under a microscope. Yeah, this is all under investigation. Speaking to former traffic police officer Grant Godkatru, Grant, in your days on the beat, did you uh, did you participate in any of these high-speed pursuits? Oh, many. Absolutely. Like it was a different world back in the 80s and 90s, obviously. Um, and sometimes they get away and sometimes we'd catch them and sometimes there'd be horrific crashes and it was the horrific crashes that caused the the government to step in and say, okay, we need to tighten up the rules on, on pursuits. Um, you know, it's, I think part of the problem was, you know, we all watched too many, uh, TV shows like the streets of San Francisco and whatnot. And boy, those high speed pursuits look like fun, but the reality is, um, they're extremely, um, um, risky. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about some of the other carnage we saw on BC roads and highways on the weekend. Grant, we had several, we had a string of fatal accidents here. Let's listen to this report. This is also from Global News. Police on the south coast are investigating three fatal crashes this weekend that have claimed the lives of at least five people. That includes a hit and run last night in Surrey. A black Toyota Corolla and a white Ford Mustang were involved in a head-on collision. Three people, including a child, are dead after a crash on Highway 99 overnight. And one person has died after a single vehicle crash in the Fraser Valley. Okay, yeah, a lot of uh, death and carnage here on the highways on the weekend. Grant, let's start with that fatal hit and run in Surrey. Did you ever have to attend any of those those type of cases when you were a traffic police officer? Oh, yeah, multiple uh, hit and runs with serious or death. And, and generally, the person that flees the scene, um, they're usually not the, the most... Uh, valid excuses like they don't have a valid driver's license or they're prohibited from driving sometimes a vehicle's stolen uh, sometimes they're impaired um yeah. those are generally the reasons why they why, why people flee the scene yeah yeah for sure you can imagine someone who's impaired like flee fleeing the scene what about uh, man we saw some absolutely tragic accidents here on the weekend this one on the sea to sky near whistler there two adults a child dead here single vehicle crash late at night twelve thirty a.m uh, near the Daisy Lake Dam, which is just south of Whistler. So we saw some fatal crashes here on the weekend. Grant, what would you say are the most common 
the common problems that cause fatal crashes on our roads and highways in BC? Is it is it speed? Like we always hear, speed kills. But I also wonder if it's not driving to to the highway conditions. I mean, there's been a lot of fog on the roads here the last couple of days. Your thoughts? Well, tis the season, right? Now we're getting into more foggy weather, and you know the the, the crashes that happen in the middle of the night. Uh, especially single vehicles, uh, generally either are from fatigue or uh, alcohol-related. Um, sometimes speed. It depends if you're familiar with the road. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a variety of reasons. And, and I think that, and I've said this many times before, there's certainly a complacency with a lot of drivers now um, because the vehicles are, are, in their mind, so much more safer, not only with crumple zones and 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 the like, but you know you have you know, forty five air bags in the vehicle and and all these warning systems, and sometimes people just rely too much on their vehicle than they do their own brain when it comes to driving. Um, they, I mean, obviously they'll do an autopsy uh, on the one on the seat of sky to determine um, what condition the driver was in, if there was any alcohol or drugs involved. They'll do a mechanical on the vehicle as well to eliminate a a vehicle defect, that type of thing. Yeah. What would you say are the most, uh, in your mind, the most dangerous stretches of roads or highways in, in British Columbia right now? Anything with a speed over 100 kilometers an hour posted, because the faster you're going, the greater risk of death uh, or serious injury. Um, so um, obviously the sea to sky has always been one uh, yeah. for, for, for obvious reasons. And and when they when they redesigned it for the Olympics back in the day, it, it certainly allowed for uh, a greater increase in speed. That is that is certainly the case. But there's also uh, part of uh, um, Highway 5, what is that, the, the Yellowhead or whatever, up near Barrier. There seems to be a lot of crashes out there, and, and as well as Highway 1 out in Golden. There's just you know, these old highways that just aren't, aren't keeping up with the changes in, in vehicles and speeds and size and whatnot. These are some of the more dangerous highways I've seen. Talking about a weekend of carnage on BC roads and highways, lots of fatal accidents. My guest, Grant Gottkutrew. Grant is a former traffic police officer. Let's go to your phone calls here. Steve in Surrey. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah, good, good morning, gentlemen. Um, I would have to say that the the Sea to Sky Highway right now is the the challenge that the province has to deal with. Previous to the the renovation, shall we say, for the Olympics, it was a seriously technical little road which was respected uh, by those who choose to, to, to drive it, in my case, ride it on my motorbike. Now it's become faster and more of a flow, and it, it doesn't uh, give previous warning to people who are uh, less capable uh, driver. They just wick up the speed because that kind of road now gives you the impression that it's safer. But when you increase the speeds, that negates that. So there's a serious problem. Uh, I almost wish that the old Sea to Sky Highway would would revert back to the old ways when people who have lesser ability wouldn't entertain taking that road at all, <laughs> to be okay, honest. That's an, that's an interesting thought, Steve. Thank you for sharing that. Grant, what do you think of that? Because you'd think that the upgrades and the, the widening of the highway in places would actually make it safer, but Steve doesn't think so. Your thoughts? Well, it's safer in a sense that there's, no, you know, you, you avoid the head-on collisions because you got the medians yeah. separating north and southbound traffic. But now you, the second you throw in nice sweeping four-lane roadways, um, 
you're going to get faster vehicles. Yeah. Uh, one of the frustrations I had when I was at the integrated road safety unit was we had some uh, members in management that, uh, that for, well, they tried to forbade us from doing uh, speed enforcement through Lions Bay. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, I disregarded that completely, and I, my team would work. Why would Lions why Bay. would they do that? Um, well, his his rationale was that um, the speed was artificially lowered because of the rich people that live in in Lions Bay, which I thought was a laughable comment. Which is why I completely disregarded it, especially when I ran the stats and showed that there were multiple fatals going through Lions Bay. And there's oh. a reason they had the speed lowered through there is because you've got several on ramps and off ramps, so you've got merging traffic. But you know, sometimes the higher you go in, the, in any organization, the less oxygen there is. So that's part of the that's part of the the, the challenge is officers want to get out there and do this enforcement, but some of the bosses say they don't agree with that enforcement okay. in certain areas, which is a joke. Tracy in Fort Langley. Hi, Tracy. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead. I was just calling about Fort Langley, uh, the area between Glover Road and on between 88th and 96th is actually a highway. There's three preschools, the back of a school and a care home in that stretch. And the, the trucks barrel through that little tiny area. And I'm, I'm just curious to why... Um, I've called engineering in the city, I don't know how many times, to get just to get 30 miles an hour down that road, and I'm, mm. I'm ignored all the time. And I, and I would say the community is ignored by the township, which is Mayor Woodworth. So I'd like what, to know why that, that what speed is this, limit... What is the speed limit there? The, the speed limit is 50, but 50. I'm sure people are going 70. Okay, Tracy, I, thank, quite, thank, thank you for the call. Grant, your thoughts? Well, and the reality for it, and and I think your callers need to to recognize this. If there's a if if there's a problematic area in your neighborhood with uh, high speeds uh, uh, of vehicles, you just phone the local police department or detachment, get a hold of their traffic people, and say, "Can you come out and do some enforcement?" That's the yeah. job of the police. That's what yeah. That, that's a that's actually a really good suggestion, Mary in Richmond. Mary, you have thirty seconds here. Okay, go ahead. Oh my God, I can can't get it out in two seconds. Okay. Um, my my problem is about the uh, car lights. Are you there? Yes, yes, we're listening. Okay, the new newer cars, new models, and I was also told people can buy the headlights online also, and they get them installed. Maybe not professionally, whatever. I don't know, but I feel something has gone very wrong with the new headlights that are on cars. They are totally blinding. Hmm, you can okay. come around the corner on the highway, like to see this guy, and boom, you do not see anything. Thank, thank you, Mary, for the call. Grant, you got 20 seconds to reply on that. What do you think? Yeah, if the lights are too bright coming at you, we're trained, look at the fog line. In other words, don't stare like you're a deer in the headlight. Look at the fog line, and that way you can still see the road. Let's talk about the cost of living in this city now, the highest in Canada, cost of living in Metro Vancouver. Yeah, it is brutal. We all know that. Is it particularly tough for the youngest generation, the youngest workers 
in our economy. So let's talk about Gen Z. Okay, I guess we call them Gen Z here in Canada. Generation Z. So we're talking, this is the youngest generation, the youngest cohort in the workforce. So basically kids from 18 years old up to 26 years old entering the workforce right now. That is one definition of Gen Z. That would include my own my own sons here right now. So how tough is it for them? Brand new study out on Canadian cities. Are they meeting the needs and expectations of this youngest generation of workers? These are the this is the future of our country here. These young people are our big cities meeting their needs. Short answer is no. And when you take a look at this list and it ranks things like the cost of housing, the cost of living overall, the work-life balance expectations, the mental health uh, resources that are available for people who are stressed out. Vancouver, nowhere on this list, basically doesn't make the cut at all. Very few cities in British Columbia do, according to this survey. Got Delta City Councilor Dylan Kruger standing by to discuss here. Have a listen to this here now. This is the voice of young people speaking out about what they're experiencing in this very difficult economy here on social media. Have a listen to this. I have $70 worth of groceries on my table right now, and I genuinely don't even know what I purchased that made it to $70. I just got a good job. I start in September, but even with that job, I can't buy anything. I can't afford the rent these days. The wages are staying the same. I can't afford to move out. I'm 24 and I'm embarrassed that I can't move out. So what am I supposed to do? Where where am I supposed to go? I'm working like three jobs right now because the cost of living and I'm not even really saving that. I'm not saving anything really. $350,000 got you a really nice place, at least where I'm from. Now it's like you need $700,000 plus to even get a half decent home. I feel so utterly stuck. You go to school, you get a degree, and you're still not guaranteed a job. 60K a year, that used to be like a decent amount of money, not anymore. I was telling my parents, like, it's just so frustrating that like you do all the right things, you go to university, and then you come out, you get a job, whatever, and you can barely afford rent. You can't, you can't blame them. You can't blame them for feeling this way, I think. Especially when you look at the cost of living in this economy for housing. Forget about buying a place, I mean, even rent is astronomical in this city. How are young people, and I'm talking the youngest generation here entering this workforce, how are they supposed to deal with this now? They can't afford to move out of their parents' house in a lot of cases. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Dylan Kruger, Delta City Councillor, and I'm always grateful for his time. Dylan, thank you for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me. Okay, you're always my go-to guy here on these topics because you're you're a young leader in our city here. What do you think of this survey here? Because you take a look at this, and it says basically most big Canadian cities, Vancouver included, are not not meeting the the needs and expectations of this youngest generation of workers. What do you think of that? Yeah, you know, and it's always tempting to hear these stories, and you know, chatting with some of my friends from different generations, and you know, one of the one of the first instincts is, oh, you know, young people these days, like you know, I had the same issues when. When I was their age, and there's no question, it's always difficult. It's never easy starting off in life when you're, uh, you know, living on your own for your first time, getting a job for the first time, paying bills for the first time. But things are objectively more difficult today, even than even than they were 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, the cost of living, as as you mentioned, Mike, 
we have some of the most unaffordable housing uh, in the world, uh, let alone in North America here in Vancouver, with vacancy rates that are less than 1%. Uh, the cost of groceries, I'm sure everyone has seen. Uh, you know, I remember what a $150 grocery bill looked like uh, pre-pandemic, and it looks very different today. And you're dealing with a generation that, that feels like they've done everything right, everything that they were told to do. They they, they went to post-secondary, they, they got the training that they needed, they went into a, a sector that was supposed to, to supply them with, with enough to have a, a, a reasonable uh, living. And when I say reasonable, I mean a roof over your head and enough to put a little bit of money away to save for for some hope of a future. Uh, and people just aren't seeing that. They're just not seeing that opportunity uh, generationally, especially in big cities, especially in Vancouver. And it's leading to a sense of, of, of hopelessness and despair. And you heard a few of the clips uh, from folks that are feeling that way. Okay. When you talk about that, there is some objective evidence that it is different now from the past, because I remember as, a, as an old guy, when I was graduated from university looking for a first job early 1980s okay so we're going way back and there was a bad recession going on then too it, it was tough to it was tough to get a job i mean but i still recall that when i was able to get a, a decent job i was able to pretty easily afford my rent you know, I was able to get by pretty well. Do you think that's changed a lot? Like, what are some of the objective sort of indicators that show that for this generation of young people, it's it's tougher? Yeah, I, I, I like to point to the Simpsons example where Homer Simpson was, uh, you know, worked at, at the plant and was a, a one one income uh, household and was able to put together enough to have a single family home for, for his four kids and a dog. And the, the Homer Simpson example from, from the 1980s is just not, not reality anymore. Uh, we know that uh, uh, four in 10 uh, Gen Zs have side hustles, some kind of side income in order to make enough ends meet, to pay the bills, to pay groceries. Uh, so that could be anything from uh, you know, d driving Uber or having a, you know, a side web design or, or photography uh, business, anything to earn a little bit of extra income uh, to get by. Uh, we know that uh, the, the reality is that wages have not kept pace with the cost of living in the last uh, 30 years, especially in the last 15 years, uh, which is why uh, the cost of housing uh, is outpacing wage growth and the, the, the price of, of groceries is outpacing uh, wage growth. And uh, th this level of side hustle, we just have not seen this uh, in previous generations. Now, uh, I think that we're a little bit slow on government to, to legalize these forms of innovation, too. I mean, you, you look at ride sharing. Vancouver was or British Columbia was one of the last jurisdictions in North America to, to legalize ride sharing, which is, has been a great side hustle uh, for some folks. So uh, home based businesses is another one. More and more young people that are uh, using home based businesses and running into hurdles when it comes to, to, to licensing and, and bylaws and zoning and other requirements. So I think we do have a, a duty as elected officials to look at these struggles and say, what can we do to make life easier uh, for young people that are just trying to make ends meet? Yeah. Speaking of Dylan Kruger, Delta City Councillor, he is one of the dynamic young leaders in Metro Vancouver here. We're talking about the cost of living, especially for the youngest generation of workers. Another new report just out, Dylan, for your thoughts. This one tracks the living arrangements for, again, we're talking Generation Z here. So we're talking people late 18 to 23 or 18 to 26 is another definition I've seen of this age bracket. And this survey indicates that more young people in that age cohort 
are are it's less likely that they will live they will live alone. Most will need a roommate in order to afford their rent and that the average age at which people can actually afford a place of their own without a roommate is actually rising. Okay, so we've got more young people have to share accommodation in order to get by. Also indicate, same study, focused mostly on the United States, this study, but I think it applies here too, that a lot of younger people are looking to move. They're looking to leave some of these expensive cities like Vancouver, move somewhere else where the cost of living is more affordable. Dylan, are, are you seeing that among younger workers today in Metro? Uh, I am. I hear it more and more. In fact, there was some news uh, in the last few weeks where, forget about a roommate, there was a situation in, in uh, downtown Toronto where um, where uh, a young person working was, was trying to rent out half of, of her bed, half of her queen-size <laughs> beds. So come in and pay 1800 bucks a month to rent half of my bed uh, while I'm at work. I mean, that that's the level of, of desperation that fo- some folks are in. And I think we, we have to come back to reasonable expectations. Again, we, we, we should expect that it's going to be difficult starting off to find a good job, to make some money. To, you know, that we've all done the hustle. We get that. But it's a reasonable expectation to want to have a safe, uh, safe uh, place to live. It's a reasonable expectation to want some semblance of work, work-life balance, some semblance of mental health benefits, uh, some semblance of a living wage. And we're just not meeting uh, those reasonable expectations. It's, isn't that a sad state of affairs for a, a G7 nation like ourselves? I stopped going out and um, I, I, I don't even have Wi-Fi anymore. I used to live in downtown. So I moved back home. Half of my paycheck is going into like paying off the credit card. It's just ridiculous. Housing is too expensive. Food is too expensive. Childcare is too expensive. The voice of young people in this economy. My guest, Dylan Kruger, Delta City Councillor. Lots of calls on this. Let's go to them now. Carol in West Van. Hi, Carol. Go ahead. Hi. Um, yeah, I think I can sort of bring a perspective of somebody who is a 65-year-old nurse who in 1982 uh was laid off. Um, I was paying $700 a month for an apartment, which was a lot of money actually for me. I had to have roommates um, in order to have a standard of living that I thought was reasonable. If I want, when I wanted a car, I had to actually take out a bank loan. I'm, I think there are some things that are that are different, but there were always challenges. And um, the way I dealt with those was to um, to work harder, to get other jobs, to work overtime. I'm now an employer with a staff of 20, and the challenges that we find getting employees who want to work um, hard, who are willing to work overtime, who are willing to go the extra mile, there's definitely a, a sort of a generalized attitude that is different. And I speak to fellow nurse colleagues who are saying the same things. Women in my generation as nurses are noticing uh, nurses coming into the workforce uh, do not seem to have the same work ethic. That what, what are they? Were they slackers? Yeah, people that call in sick, um, tons of single sick days, Mondays and Fridays. Um, mm. People that are um, very stressed in their workplace who need lots of positive reinforcement um, in healthcare. You, you, you have to have certain expectations in terms of the caliber of work, even somebody in the entry-level position, such as a receptionist. And okay. it's, I, we find it 
there's a general trend of needing to really um, use kid gloves in our approach with these people. Um, and I hear that all over the place. And with people okay, I, I mean, I, I hear it too. I, Carol, thank you for the call. Okay, I'm sure you've heard this too, Dylan, that younger people now, they don't want to work. They don't want to work hard. They're, they're slackers. What do you say to that? Yeah, sure, Mike. And, and there is certainly a spectrum of employees, and I think that's true in every generation. Uh, I also can tell you stories of, like I said, young people that, that feel like they've done uh, everything right and aren't getting their fair shake in this economy. And I think I think every generation has had a really good fight. I think that I think about you know what they would have said a hundred years ago when you know the, this new generation only wants to work five days a week. And you know back in my day we worked seven days a week and they want weekends off. It's crazy. Like every generation has a fight, and I thank them for that. And I think there's a reasonable expectation uh, for work-life balance for mental health supports. And I do know lots of young people that are working hard and are also, uh, you know, up against uh, uh, challenges when it comes to that. Yeah. George in Nanaimo. Hi, George. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Still waiting for your email. Anyway, um, back in my day, it was if you don't like this job, there's 100 guys that would take it tomorrow. And that was all true. But now my son has has a skill. He's in construction. He's very much in demand. He would have 100 companies fighting for him if he became available. So there is pros and cons either way. But another thing that is happening, and I know we've talked about this a bit, Mike, is if these proposed changes go through on the gig economy, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. And they're using this as extra money to also try to get by. So this is a bad thing that's about to happen, and it's not really been shed the light on. You've talked about it a little bit, but um, we're all very worried out here. Okay, George, thank you for that. And send me another email, will you? Because you've mentioned a few times on the air that I haven't responded to your email. And I actually did try to find it, uh, find your email, and I could not locate it. So just send me another one, all right? Mike at CKNW.com. Warren and Shoe Swap. Warren, you got 30 seconds here. All right. Well, I'm just going to say that, uh, I, you know, I'm 60 years old. Um, I had uh, three jobs. Uh, moved to nine different locations when I was starting out. Things were tough back then. They're tough now. But I think there's a work ethic uh, that's missing in this generation, and I see it as an employer day-to-day uh, that okay. was not there back then. So thank, um, you, Warren. thank you, Warren. For, thank you, Warren, for the call. We're out of time. Dylan, thank you for yours today. Mike, thanks for having me. All right, here we go now with our great private school debate. Why does British Columbia use public money to fund private schools? $491 million, according to one recent study. That's how much taxpayers' money flowed to private, also known as independent schools, in British Columbia in the last fiscal year. Why? Is this a good use of taxpayers' money? Should public funding of private schools in B.C. be canceled? Now, we got a great panel standing by to discuss this for you, both sides of it. Now, why would parents send their kids to an independent school in British Columbia in the first place? Have a listen to this. This is an online ad from Canada's independent schools. Have a listen. 
The decision that we made around the independent school had a lot to do with something we all feel as parents. We all think our child children are very special, we all think they have lots of potential. My four children are all quite different and the, the school has been very, very good at embracing their individualism. They do know each child and they want them to succeed. I think every penny that I've spent in the independent school system has been completely worth it. I would advise any parent who is interested in sending their child to an independent school, absolutely, no question. Okay. All right. Well, I think a lot of parents would like to send their kids to one of these schools if they have the money. All right. Let's discuss it now with my guest. What a great panel we've got for you. Patty Bacchus, education advocate. Patty is the former chair of the Vancouver School Board. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Patty, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. Also on the line, Jason Clemens. Jason is executive vice president of the Fraser Institute. He's written a lot about this issue. Jason, thank you. Thanks. My pleasure. Okay. Thank you to both of you for being here. Patty, let me start here with you first. When we take a look at school funding in British Columbia, a lot of money flowing to independent schools. Your thoughts on that? Well, you know, Mike, I get that many parents have, you know, pretty valid reasons for wanting to make choices about where they send their kids. But when I see the almost half a billion dollars of public money that is now going to subsidize private options while our public schools are grappling with very tight budgets and not able being able to deliver the kinds of programs and supports that most school boards would like to be able to. Uh, as a taxpayer, I don't want my money subsidizing schools that are not democrat democratically governed and open to all students. I'm happy to support public schools with my taxes, but it makes me very angry that my tax dollars are going to subsidize private schools. Okay, Jason Clemens, what do you say to that? Uh, well, I, I think there's a couple things we want to clarify. So okay. first off is that the parents who are sending their kids to independent schools are paying full taxes. There's there's no tax break. And so in fact, those parents are paying the full cost of public education and then paying between 50% of the operating cost to 65% of the operating cost for their children to go to independent schools. So this model in British Columbia actually results in a savings. So if, in other words, if we were to end the public uh, distribution to independent schools, who, by the way, have to follow provincial curriculum and provincial guidelines and provincial regulations. If we were to end that, there would actually be a huge increase in costs to taxpayers as some of those students move from the independent school system into the public system. I, I think then there's a really important question for the province, um, which is, the province would now be moving to a model like Ontario, I assume, where the province would be providing religious education. And so I, I think we want to be careful about, about, about both the cost and the savings uh, that come from eliminating the subsidy to independent schools. Yeah, and no, I've, I've heard that argument a lot. And Patty, for your thoughts on that, like for, for parents who have their kids, let's say in the Catholic school system or another part of the independent school system, yeah, they're getting a subsidy from the government. The government's helping fund those schools. But if that subsidy was removed and those parents had to pay 100% of the cost of that independent school tuition, I think it's probably pretty evident that a lot of those parents would say, well, I can't afford the entire 100% cost, so they've got to go to public school. So wouldn't that, would that not logically increase the cost of the public system? 
Well, I've got a couple of points on that. I, yeah. I went to a private school as a kid. My parents chose to send me to one of Vancouver's most elite private schools. Um, and there was a wait list to get in. I had to go through a, an interview process. And uh, and in fact, that was, I'm old enough, Mike, there was no subsidy in those days. So parents oh. were paying the full cost of private schools back then, early 70s, before Wacky Bennett. Uh, I, I believe it was Wacky Bennett who made the decision to start providing the funding to private schools. Private schools have been around a long time. Uh, there are more now than there used to be. <clears throat> but there were always parents who were willing to pay the full 100%. I, I have friends whose kids are in private schools who didn't even realize they were getting a subsidy and were like, oh, we shouldn't even be getting that. I suspect many parents would keep their kids in private schools. Um, having been a, a school trustee in Vancouver, I was the longest serving chair of the Vancouver School Board ever. Uh, one of the biggest challenges we had in Vancouver was uh, surplus capacity and the difficult decisions about whether to close schools. And uh, with the funding formula that the BC Liberals brought in that tied funding to enrollment, that really hit hard. Uh, we would have loved to have had an influx of kids from the private system. And often those are the less expensive kids to teach because they tend to be well supported at home, not so much living in poverty and some of the other challenges that are that are relatively more expensive for a school district to provide. So I, I really doubt that the financial pressure that some of the folks from places like the Fraser Institute try to raise that fear, I don't believe that would actually happen. Now, in terms okay. of a tax break or parents, you know, all those parents are paying for, for school taxes. Well, I pay for school taxes. I haven't had kids in school in over a decade. I happily pay my taxes. I see public schools as a public good uh, that we all should contribute to, whether we have kids or not, whether we have kids in school or not. We all pay those taxes, uh, just mm. like we pay for community centers. Now, if I choose to go work out at a private country club, I don't expect to get a voucher to offset that because I'm not using my publicly funded community center. Okay, J we, Jason. We, we contribute for public good, not for private services. Jason, go ahead. What do you say to that? Yeah, so I, I think we, again, we, we want to clarify, only 8% of independent schools in British Columbia are elite, the, the kind of prep schools that I... I think Ms. Bacchus is referring to. And so if you look at the average household income for parents sending their kids to non-elite independent schools, which are largely religious schools or schools like Montessori or Waldorf that have an alternative approach to education, their family income is essentially the exact same as average family income sending their kids to public schools. So the, the idea that these are the top 1% of families who are incredibly wealthy and they can afford it no matter what we ask them to pay, that's really possibly 8% of independent schools. It's the other 92% where these are average British Columbia families. And so the question then becomes, why would we say to those families who are paying full taxes plus 50% of the cost for their kids to go to an independent school again, Waldorf Astoria or a religious school, that they shouldn't have that choice anymore. Um, I mean, it, again, it, it seems to me they're overpaying and in fact subsidizing the public system in order to get some choices in the broader uh, educational system uh, in the province. And so yeah. I, I think we want to be really careful about conflating what are the elite uh, or university prep schools versus what really are the overwhelming majority of independent schools in British Columbia. Right. We're debating public funding of private schools. My guests are Patty Backus, Jason Clemens. Lots of calls here. Joyce in Surrey on the line. Hi, Joyce. Go ahead. 
Hi, Mike. Um, yeah, I'm uh, a grandmother now. I've had four children go through the private school system, and uh, that was back in the 80s and 90s. And we paid for our full tuition. We paid for uh, some of the capital costs of building some of the private schools that our children went to, and now our gr- grandchildren go there. And we are helping our children pay for the schools because they can't even afford to live in houses. So, yeah, I'm just uh, a little bit concerned that that last caller, the last woman that was speaking, she um, pointed out that we get all these rebates. We do get a little bit of a tax break on our taxes, but it's, it, yeah, we are paying the public um, taxes and we're paying private. So um, yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit upset that um, that last caller said we get such a break and we don't. We're, okay. we're paying double, basically. Okay, thank you for the call. Patty Bacchus, what do you say to her? Well, in BC, uh, there's two funding categories for private schools. One is Group 1. Uh, those are schools, generally that includes the faith-based schools and private schools that don't charge a total amount um, or don't spend more than public schools spend per year on kids. So a lot of the different alternative schools, the group two schools, which, uh, and those schools, sorry, in the group one get 50% of the funding grants that public schools do and 100% of any special education supplementary grants. Uh, in addition, as, as the caller mentioned, they have access to some tax deductions as well and uh, exemptions. Uh, the group two schools that are funded are the elite private schools, more likely with the higher tuition rates that can be significantly higher than what a public school can spend per year on a child. And they get 35% of the funding grant. Some parents aren't aware of that because that funding goes to the school or school district um, and may not sort of channel through the parents' hands. So they may still be paying a tuition bill, uh, but it is generally if they're considered one of the group one or group two schools that it is subsidized by provincial taxpayers. Okay, Jason Clemens, your thoughts on that? Like, I wonder, given what Patty just described, like these elite private schools, right, that get, they get a lower subsidy from government, 35%, as Patty described there. Is there a case to to eliminate that part of it? These are the super, the super elite prep schools. Do you think they should, their funding should be cut? Your thoughts? No, not at all. I mean, again, we want to be careful because, you know, by and large, families that have their kids at the quote unquote elite schools have higher income levels. And so they're already paying a higher tax in the province and federally because we have a progressive tax system. So what Ms. Bacchus is saying is that not only should they have pay, they have to pay higher taxes, but they should also then have to pay higher fees if they want to send their children to different types of schools. And so, you know, I think one of the things she said was very telling about that the school board and the district want more kids. What she didn't say is what the parents want. And the British Columbia model, like all Western Canada and Quebec, is much more parent focused because we provide at least 50% subsidies or sorry, up to 50% subsidies for parents who want an alternative education to the public system. Now, we only have to look at Atlantic Canada, which has the kind of system that Ms. Bacchus advocates for to see the major problems in those provinces in terms of it being a very high cost model for K-12 education with modest to poor results. And so mm. to me, I'm, I'm not quite sure why we would, we would want to move to a model that we see in other provinces that is not performing as well as British Columbia today. And in fact, okay. what I would say is let's look at the Australian model or the Swedish model 
to get even more choice for parents and for kids. Okay, squeeze in another call here. Daryl and Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl, go ahead. Yes, I, I thank you very much. I, I think, uh, thankfully, Patty's starting to talk about how things are being funded. My wife worked for SD43 for almost 29 years, and they send in what's known as a 1701, and Patty knows what that is. And that's how the provincial ministry funds school districts. It's per student. There's extra money for indigenous. There's extra money for gifted. And it goes so on. It, it just keeps going. The, your your uh, other gentleman that's on is correct. Higher income people pay higher income taxes. They pay property taxes. They pay consumption taxes. And they should be afforded the ability to send their children to school and get the same funding or almost the same funding that the, that the ministry provides for public schools. Okay, Daryl, thank you for the call. Sadly, we're getting close to the end of our time. So, Patty, I'll I'll give you a minute each here to wrap up here. Patty, you go ahead first. Go ahead. Well, I'm going to share one of my favorite quotes from, of all people, Warren Buffett, who said Uh, that you could the solution to the problems in our education system would be to make private schools illegal and assign every child to a state school by random lottery. I would encourage those wealthy high tax parents to choose public schools and advocate and use their influence and connections and power to ensure public schools are kept to the high quality that every single child deserves, regardless of their parents' income levels. Hmm. Okay. Jason, what do you say to that? Well, I I would say that the way to get the type of system that I think Ms. Bacchus is advocating for is to look at countries that achieve those kinds of results or other provinces. And British Columbia, for the longest time, uh, up to about Christy Clark's period, when we started undoing the system that we have, had one of the leading K-12 education systems in the country. Um, Mm -hmm. If you look internationally, we were a leader, not only in Canada, but internationally. And a big part of that was affording parents' choice, regardless of their income level. And so to me, I'd like to look at the Australian model that would empower lower income families to be able to much more easily access independent schools of their choice so that we are getting uh, parents and more responsiveness to parents and to those students. And to me, it's not moving towards the model in Atlantic Canada, where, again, it's high cost and low to middle performance. It's learning the lessons of our success, both in the past and to today. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.